Bond servants, it starts off, which is another word for slaves. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So, so says the word of God, and that's what we're going to use to drive this today. There's no way I can get around this without talking to slavery, though. Um, it, it needs to be addressed. It's right in front of us. This is where expositional teaching helps. I and mean, we've beat this drum before about the fact that once you start with verse 1 and go all the way through the whole chapter, there's no way you can skip these trouble texts. These are more difficult to deal with. I don't know if I've ever heard this preached on um, growing up for several years in the church. Because, I mean, there's so many other passages to preach on. Why would you start with, with this one? Slaves obey their masters, right? Um, but Paul actually talks about this a lot. He addresses slaves, slavery, slave masters. He talks to the Colossian church, says it to the Ephesian church, almost word for word from what we just read. Speaks to the Corinthian church. He speaks to Titus, who's pastoring in Crete. He speaks to Timothy on the same issue as he's pastoring in Ephesus. Um, Peter chimes in and has something to say about it. It's, it's done clearly and frequently all in the New Testament. How slaves need to act. How slaveholders need to act. In fact, even in this, if you've noticed from this week and last week, this has more playing time than what was written for families. Wives and husbands and kids. This is actually getting more time. And the, and the interesting thing about this, I don't know if you know this about this letter or what's going on, but Paul is talking to a church where there's this guy in the church. He must be kind of wealthy. His name is Philemon, right? Now Philemon, a fixture in this Colossian church, he's a slaveholder, right? He's got a slave. The slave's name is Onesimus. And Onesimus runs away. It's illegal to do that, by the way. Some scholars say he took some money. I don't know if we have a whole lot pointing to that, but it doesn't matter to me. Either way, he, he broke the law according to their laws. He ran away. He wanted to go to the big city so he could lay low, so he goes to Rome. So he's in Rome, hiding out, away from his master, and he bumps into Paul. Now, remember, Paul at this time is in prison. He's writing these books from prison. Colossians was written from house arrest. Somehow, Onesimus bumps into him, becomes radically saved, becomes a Christian, and that's how it is. He says, you know what, we got a, we've got a problem now. You're a Christian and you just ran away. Now, I'm not big on being a slave and dealing with all of that, but you've got to go home. You broke the law. Now, if you remember several weeks ago, we talked about how this letter was transported from Rome to Colossae. And what happened was, is there was this guy, some of you might remember, his name is Tychicus, right? Because it's a funny name. So Tychicus brings the letter of Colossians to the Colossian area, that region, the Lycus Valley from Paul. What I didn't tell you then is he had a companion. When he was on that travel, Onesimus the slave was with him. And he was carrying another book, and it was the book of Philemon. It's the book in your Bible, right? So whenever you read that one chapter book of Philemon in your Bible, that is Paul talking to a slaveholder, right, about a slave who just brought him the letter, right? Onesimus was with that. 
So that should make it jump off the page a little bit more. Right? The Bible is, some people accuse the Bible of being pro-slavery. Read Philemon. Read the book of Philemon. You really get to peer underneath the hood of Paul's heart and his posture, and you find out that's not at all the case. All right? now, at least not the slavery you and I understand to be slavery. You see, Paul and Jesus, they both were against anything that would hold the dignity and the stature of one person over another. Or a people group over another people group. That's why you find Jesus saying things like, Hey, love the Lord God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Which kind of kneecaps slavery, as we understand slavery anyway today. Then you've got what Paul said just not even a few weeks ago as we preached it in Colossians 3. He says, Now that you're a Christian, there's no Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian. And then he says, Free, slave. What he's saying is this, now that there is Christ in you, he becomes the new center of your orbit. He changes all categories, he changes all of distinctions, all of your relationships are now redefined and recategorized, not based on the way you look, or how much money you make, or where you came from, but based on the fact that you know and you love Jesus Christ. That is what redefines everything. So why didn't, this is the question that a lot of us, if you're thinking this, I thought it too. Why didn't Paul just freak out on slavery altogether? He had the opportunity. Here he's writing to the Colossian church. He mentions slavery and he doesn't say it's wrong. He doesn't say stop it. He doesn't call for a revolt or a rebellion. He doesn't flip out on these people. Why not? In fact, if you're reading, you find out it's not at all the slavery that we understand. And I want to explain this a little bit, because what we have a tendency to do as Christians, especially here in Western, I guess what you call Western contemporary Christianity, is we take our cultural understanding of something, our grid, our worldview, and we lay it down on top of Scripture. Right? We have an experience of slavery by the fact that just me mentioning the word slavery you immediately thought of the American experience in slavery. 19th, 18th century, century, or 17th century slavery, right? Which was racial, it was permanent, it was forced, right? That's what we understand. That's, whenever you say it, you can't even get around it anymore. That's what we see slavery as. And we have a tendency to lay this on top of Scripture, and anytime we see the word slavery, bond service, bond servant, we think that's what it is. You know... And the truth is, with our country, slavery is a huge blight in our history's timeline. I mean, it's a time when the church largely kind of fell asleep at the wheel. Um, it's, a, it's a time where our forefathers were not really pushing the plow as hard as they could. You know, we went to Thomas Jefferson's house, Monticello in Virginia, um, for our vacation. Isn't that what y'all think of when you think of vacation? Going to Virginia and going to Monticello. So we did this so we could teach the kids, and it was fun. And what, they, what, the, what the tour guide tries to do, what, what she did is she was like, you know what, Thomas Jefferson was really the one that threw the first jab against slavery. He was anti-slavery. He didn't like slavery. He wrote against it. And then later on, you realize he had 700 slaves. I'm thinking, well, he's not using the product he's selling. You know he's got 700 slaves. Our country, I'll just submit this, does not do a good job, did not do a good job of being anti-slavery. It's a fact. That's the slavery you and I understand. But when we take that and we lay it down on top of passages like this, that's not a, that's not a very good 
Let me just say it this way. That's not how we should read the Bible. What we've been talking about week after week after week after week is what we call exegesis. Exegesis is just a big, I mean, it's, it's just a fancy word for saying, hey, we look at the text, we look at what is written, why it was written, when it was written, who it was written to, what were the conditions going on, and that helps us understand what is being said, right? Exegesis means to draw out, to draw truth out. Eisegesis is the wrong way to read the Bible. That's where we take our understandings from here, 2012, and we squeeze them into a verse where they don't belong. Where we take our understanding of slavery and we immediately project it on top of this understanding of slavery. And we can be real guilty of that sometimes. First century slavery, it wasn't racial. It wasn't permanent. And most of the time it was not forced. Um, Slaves, bond servants, back in this time, they were indistinguishable from their masters. That's because it wasn't racial. It wasn't a black and white thing. It wasn't a brown skin or a white skin thing. A lot of times, most times, you could not tell the difference between a slave and the one who owned that slave, or bond servant, or indentured servant, however you want to put it. You couldn't even tell. They looked the same. They talked the same. They are from the same part of the region, most often. It wasn't fueled by racial distinctions like what you and I understand. Now, there were a few things that would land you in slavery, though. One of them is serious debt. If you got yourself in some serious debt, you or your family or both could end up as an indentured servant, as a slave. Not much has changed, has it? I mean, how many of y'all pay a credit card bill, you know? How much of our next generation is going to pay for what we've spent? That's basically what was going on. That's how they would pay off debts. What about orphans? Remember, we're talking about a time with no welfare system. No child protective services. No government umbrella that's taking in the handicapped, the unparented, the unwanted. You don't see any of that anywhere. You would have chunks of the city, especially Rome, to where if you were just making babies and you wanted to have a son, right? And all you could do is make girls... You would take the girls and leave them in a part of the city, whether baby or not, and just leave them to what the elements do. Right? So you'd have that. And it wouldn't just have to be babies. It could be just little young ones that you couldn't afford anymore. If you're parents and you can't afford your kids, you just drop them off on a separate part of the city. It sounds horrible, doesn't it? The church, actually, was the first form of a type of CPS, Child Protection Services, or adoption. The church would go out and take those babies and the unwanted, bring them into their own houses and love them. That's how it started to sprawl and grow and get wide during the Roman Empire, or or in the Roman Empire. That's how we saw that, which is a real beautiful gospel image, right? Because it was something the church was able to do to say, hey, look, what we're doing is matching what we're preaching, because God came here to collect the unlovely, to adopt in those who no one wanted, who were stealing who were left on the outsides of the city. It was the very gospel that they were preaching, that they were exemplifying with their very actions. So we see that. That's how you could end up in servitude, in slavery. Now, overall, this is astonishing to me. Whenever I studied this, and I've been spending a lot of time studying this, they say in that Mediterranean region, one-third of all the populace were most possibly slaves. Slaves, bond servants, or indentured servants. One third. In fact, in most cities, in in one particular region, there were more slaves than there were free people. There's a lot of people. This is why the Bible is so fluent in addressing it. It was everywhere. It was just a part of their normal. A lot of times these slaves and bond servants were much more educated than their masters because they were handling their estates. 
They were managing the estates. Um, think about Nehemiah. You know, we're, we're going to start talking about Nehemiah here probably in two months. You had to be good looking and well educated and well spoken because you're standing next to the king all the time. Right? Wasn't uncommon to have your slaves be very educated. In fact, they made a lot of money too. Most people found out that studied this, most scholars realized that by the 20s or at, at, probably at latest, the early 30s, those who were adopted as bond servants as children were able to afford their own freedom because they made dollar for dollar almost more than the free man. See, it's, not, it's a little different than what you and I have always understood as slavery, isn't it? The bond servants. Slaves had slaves. A lot of them were brought in as maids and housekeepers. Some of them even adopted into the family. Some of them even deeply loved. In fact, a lot of times, and you can find this in Scripture, a lot of times when a slave or a bondservant was given an opportunity for freedom, they would opt out of that. They would want to remain in the office and the position that they were always in. Right? Nehemiah, once again, is a good example. He already had one opportunity to go back to Jerusalem. In fact, if you read in Ezra and Nehemiah, there are a few times where the king says, Hey, all of you Jews, if you want to go back home, go back home. And on a couple times, hey, your bosses, they need to be giving you money. We're going to underwrite your, your way back. We're going to underwrite everything. We're going to send you out with gifts. Go home. It's what you've always wanted. The call went out to everybody. Not very many went, though. It's proof that the whole nation of Israel being in bond service, actually, a lot of them liked what was going on. They actually were, hey, this is a pretty good deal I got going on here. I kind of like it. So, along with Paul, along with Jesus, you, I, we as a church, I'm vehemently against, you are vehemently against any kind of putting one person's stature and dignity above another's. We are against that. Paul is against that. Jesus is against that. But why didn't Paul, like I said earlier, freak out on slavery in this? Why didn't he have something to say? Think about what would have happened if he had just tried to upend slavery, the way that they understood slavery. What would have happened to the orphans? What would have happened to the unwanted children? What would the debtors do if people stopped paying their debts? If you couldn't work for a debtor, what would happen? I mean, if I was MasterCard and people stopped paying their debt and there's nothing I can do about it and there was no penal way I can get, you know, I don't know, justice, they would start killing people or hurting them or imprisoning them or doing all kinds of things. Paul understood that this was not the slavery that you and I see as slavery. All right, that's important. It's important for you to know. The Bible is not pro-slavery. In fact, look at the history of how the slave trade stopped in England, William Wilberforce. I mean, his text was the Bible. That is what he used to, brick by brick, pull out what we see as the slave trade. This is one of his quotes. It says, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of morality. The Bible is not pro-slavery. The Bible was used to pull apart slavery. That is what we see. So what is Paul saying here then? If he's not talking to the same slavery you and I understand, what is he saying? He's saying the same thing he's been saying this whole book. This whole book, the whole letter to Colossians, he's been saying one primary theme. Jesus is preeminent. He's first in rank. 
He is above all. He is ahead of all. He's king of all. He is over all. And if that's true, Paul says, it changes everything about you. Changes the way you say things. Changes the way you see things. Changes the way you do things. It changes the way you're a husband. Changes the way you're a wife. It changes the way that you think. It changes the way that you work. It changes the way that you handle your finances, your time. It changes everything. If your center changes, it changes everything. It's a colossal statement. That's why it's in this book. It's one of the most colossal statements. Is that Jesus is king, everything changes for you. Everything changes. So wives, if you want an example, and you want to know how everything changes for you, look at Christ. As your example for submission. Like what we heard last week from Jeremy. Submit because Christ submitted. Christ submitted to a will that was exterior to his at times. You have husbands. Look above to Christ as your example of love. Because love was demonstrated for you, even to a cross. Children, look above as your example of obedience. Because someone was obedient to death, even death on a cross. I mean, it goes on and on. Slaves, look, look up to Christ as your impartial rewarder. One who sees everything. Even the stuff that nobody else sees. Masters, You have a master. It goes on and on. If Jesus is king, it changes everything about you. I love this guy, Max Anders. He says this, sums it up. Spirituality, Christianity for us, is a matter of understanding our identification with Christ. Having our lifestyle transformed and honoring Christ in our relationships. It changes everything. I can say it over and over again. So here it is. So why do we care? Why do we care about this ultimately? This passage. What does it have for us in 2012? It's talking to us about employment. Our work. Our work. You, me, we have earthly masters. They pay us to do a job we'd rather not do all the time. We do that work with these earthly masters because we want to live and we want to do the things that we want to do. It's talking to us about employment. So how does Jesus being king... And preeminent overall, how does that inform how we go to work or how we go to school? How does that inform us as students, employees? How does the gospel, how can that be applied to our work ethic? How does that work? How does what Paul says here help us? These are the questions you need to be asking as you read through things like this. I'm gonna, this is the only scripture I'm going to have you turn to other than the one that we just did. And it's Genesis 3.17. Turn there. One of the most important chapters and passages in the whole Bible. Oh, you already got it up there? Yeah. And I say this every week. If you don't like your Bible, um, we have some for free on that table in the back. Just grab it on the way out and you own it. Um, Genesis 3.17. It's going to say this on the screen. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till I return you to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Man, that's depressing. (laughs) That's a depressing passage. I'm going to submit to you what God says here. Work is a curse. It's a curse. Work is a curse. 
Even people that hate Jesus and burn Bibles agree with me on that. That's something we can all as mankind agree on. Work is a curse. This is why you get paid to do it. Right? Because something has to get your butt out of bed in the morning. Something has to cause you to get ready, put on makeup, get clothes on, go and warm the car up because it's cold and it's nasty. Get up there, deal with the attitudes that everyone has in the morning. Go to class, whatever it is. The reason we do it for work is for a paycheck because it's a curse and we wouldn't do it for free. I know some people say that you do it for free, but that's a lie. That's just what rich people say. Usually rich people or, or artists say that. Artists or um, musicians are the only ones that say, oh, I would do it for free, you know. If you're an artist, we love you here at Legacy, by the way. Welcome. If you're rich, we love you too. Um, but it's true. I mean, every, everyone would not do their job for free. You have to have something because there are those days, right? In pain, Genesis 3, 17. Thorns. Thistles. I don't even know what a thistle is. It can't be good. It's next to thorn. Thistles. Sweat of your face. This is how work is produced. God says it's, it's a curse. That's not my words. That's His words. You see, Adam was a gardener and a biologist before the fall. Naming animals, tending, taking dominion. And that was at a time when the earth yielded its power to Adam. It wasn't difficult. No sweat. No pain. No thorns, no thistles. Clocking in for Adam is not clocking in for you. Okay? That's how that looked. And then things changed. Then there was a crack. A collapse of mankind. This is what Ralph Waldo Emerson says. He says, there is a crack in everything God has made. He is right. It's not a crack from faulty craftsmanship, though. It's a crack from faulty mankind. We've cracked it and things changed. So now, although I'm going to skip and say, although work is a curse to us, it's also a calling for us. It's a curse, yet we're called to do it, right? How does that look? What are we really called to do? Well, look at what God did. Look at what Christ did. We're called to bring order out of chaos. Whether you're parking cars, or you're running a school district, or whatever, your job, when you're at your job, is to take chaos, and somehow, whether it's a service or a product, bring order to it. Bring order to what's around you. This is in the image of the one who created the heavens and the earth who looked and peered into what was chaotic and he brought order in days and seasons and separations between land and water and water and water. This is a God that built order into something that would look chaotic. And we are made in His image. Let us make man in our image, He said. So we're imaging God as we work and work well. And we're not just, we're not just imaging God the Father, we're imaging God the Son, who also brought order out of chaos. Did He not? This is the Gospel. That Jesus entered something very chaotic and sinful, sleazy, messed up mankind, which was full of spiritual orphans and spiritual dead people. It was random. It was mad. It was depressed. It was angry. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is what he entered into. How did he bring order to that? He unified us as one family adopted into a noble bloodline underneath a single banner of Christ, our King. He brought order out of chaos. We are in the image of the King, and we are called to image the one who came and saved us. That's the punchline. It's our calling. We are called to order chaos. We are called to produce. We are called to work, and we are called to work well. 
But ever since Adam collapsed mankind, it's tough working, isn't it? It's tough for us to get dominion over these things. We usually do one of two things, because we all have a spiritual default, right? On our worst day, I was just talking to Wes about this this morning. Everyone has a version of ourselves on our worst day, don't we? And we usually slip towards one end, one polar end or the other when it comes to work. We either get really lazy and we try to escape this calling, right? Right? We get lazy. Or we use work as an identity. And we just get all wrapped up in it. And it becomes us, right? We either hate our jobs and we devote too little to it, or we love our jobs too much and we devote too much to it. That's one of the two poles. So raise your hand. Yes, really raise your hand. Raise your hand if you hate your job. Hey, slow down, brother. Okay, so two of you, raise your hand if you are given to where you want your job to be your identity a little bit. That'd have to be me. I struggle with that a little bit. Anyone else? So the rest of you are unemployed? Yeah? All right? Everyone's going to be somewhere on this smear, right? But the deal is, is we are usually too in love with our job because it is who we are now, or we hate it and we just try to escape it as a calling. I want to talk about laziness just for a second. Because both of these are a failure to take dominion over work and glorify God. Laziness is just a failure to be intense with purpose. It is. This is where we escape our calling. We escape producing order out of chaos. I can't remember who said this quote, but I love it. Work is a fascinating thing. I could sit and watch people do it all day long. You know? <laughs> Anyone know somebody like that? Yeah? I do. I know people like that. This type of laziness that this passage is talking about is a very hypocritical one. Because it talks about what men see. It's a man-pleasing laziness. It's not just being lazy. It's being lazy, but trying to put on the airs of really being productive and industrious. Okay? So this is the worker that sells himself to be efficient in every way, yet he just steals time, steals resources. Anyone know someone like that? That's pastor's code for saying, are you like that, by the way, whenever you say know someone like that. See how pastors are? This is a dude that's leaning up on a wall or something like that with a cup in his hands. And then as soon as somebody comes in the room that's of higher rank, they, they stand, they get off the wall. Like that's doing anything more than this. But they do that or you walk into an office and they move their mouse real fast because they're closing out windows. Right? This is what that scripture's talking about. A person who wants to appear industrious and productive yet is not in any way. This is worse than honest laziness. You know, you walk in. Jack's got his feet up on the table. Jack, what are you doing? Nothing. Nothing. That's the whole point. It's awesome. Sit down. Put your feet up. It's fun doing nothing. That's lazy honest. All right? It's at least being honest. But being hypocritically lazy is something that's totally different. And that's what this passage is talking about. In verse 23, it says, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. Right? That word heartily, it just means this. It means with intense purpose and desire, with good will. Intense purpose and desire, with good will. Right? So how do you do this? How do you do this? How do you stop being lazy? Right? Now listen, as a church, I will tell you, we do not want to be a moralistic church. Which means, hey, being lazy is bad. Being industrious is good. Stop being lazy. Just be industrious. Just produce. Just try harder. Just do, that doesn't attach anything to the gospel. Okay, That's just being moralistic. What I want to show you is that if Jesus is king of your life and the gospel is true, that reorients everything. Not just your relationship with your husband, wife, kids, neighbor, but also your boss. It reorients your posture towards your boss. I think the first thing we need to do 
If we want to be less lazy, is we need to understand who really our boss is. Have you ever thought about that? I know if I were to say, hey, do you understand that your boss is Jesus Christ? That your boss is God? A lot of you would go, yeah, I know that already. I, Luke, I know. I know you know. I, know. I know cerebrally we all know that, but are you really convinced of that? You know, all the way through high school and most of my college, I'd say about seven years, I worked at Schlotsky's Deli. Anyone ever heard of Schlotsky's Deli? It's not around here in East Tennessee, right? Kevin talked a few weeks ago about when he worked at Subway, um, which was our big competitor, by the way. He was a sandwich artist, he said. And uh, I was, too. I was a sandwich artisan. The only difference between Schlotsky's and Subway is we were better and more expensive. All right? We were the Macintosh to their PC. That's what Schlotsky's was to Subway. And uh, so, <laughs> now I worked hard. I will say that I worked really hard at this job. I came in. At, at the lowest level possible, the lowest wage, I worked my way up to shift leader, crew leader, regional whatever, GM. I ran a couple stores. I made some big decisions that were just at the GM level. I mean, I worked my way all the way up. I worked hard. If it meant coming in when I wasn't supposed to, I came in. When it meant running errands in your own personal vehicle, I did it. If it meant coming in on a holiday when you weren't even supposed to be there early, I did it. I did everything I was supposed to do. Now, what I'm not telling you is my dad owned it. My dad owned it. All right? So, yes, I'm the, I'm the quintessential owner's kid, right? But I had to work twice as hard as everybody. I will say that as a plug because I was the owner's kid. Now, whenever I was a lower-level employee, who was I really working for? And I was working for the manager, of course. Someone was watching my moves. Someone was there. I was really working for him. It's working for my father. I understood who my boss was. I reoriented my actions. And what that did is it produced a deeper level of service and work. I was less lazy, I'll just say it that way, than the dude next to me. No one was going to out-push me, out-work me, stay longer, and stay No one was going to outdo me. Not, not in my own restaurant. Not in my own family's restaurant. Are you really convinced that God is your master at the place of your work? Are you really sold out on that? Think about it. Think about how sold out you are. Is it just a, a cerebral understanding or is it in your gut? Luke, but I don't like my job. Luke, but I don't like my job. Paul is writing to slaves. Paul is writing to slaves. I might submit they don't like their job very much, whatever they're doing. Right? <laughs> I might just say that. So, what we do as a church... As we image Jesus by working with purpose and intensity and diligence with goodwill in order to bring order to chaos, in order to draw worship and glory to God. If you're lazy and you want to appear industrious, if that's you, you're having an identity crisis. You've forgotten who you are, you've forgotten who you work for, and you've forgotten what the end game is. Right? That's basically what's going on. Now, that's on one end of the pole. The other is just that we try to gain an identity. We put on our job and it becomes us. And it's the only way that we'll ever be known by people. You know, I've, there was this study done. Um, I might have already mentioned this before, but I, I'm, I'm not sure that I have, so I'm going to say it again. There was this study done, this research study done on the evolution and history of obituaries. All right? And it was fascinating. 
I know, now, now, it sounds like a weird thing to do a study on. It sounds even weirder to read it, doesn't it? But I read it, I thought it was fascinating because what it talked about was in the 40s and the 50s, even back into the 30s, when obituaries were done, it would give the things like the date, the, who they were related to, things like that, right? Um, but then it would immediately give you descriptors of that person's character, right? They were very benevolent in the community. They were great with their kids. They were, they were deep givers to this school. They, just beautiful things about the person. Over time, it has changed. It has evolved. Now obituaries give you the name, age, family, and what they did. Engineer, principal, salesman. They worked for so-and-so. What we have done as a culture is we have gradually taken our employment and made it our identity. It has become who we are. Right? That's what, I mean, catch it. Go to a party. Go to it's Super Bowl today. If you meet people at the Super Bowl party, um, whatever it is you go to, if you meet anyone new today, I'll just say that. Watch how quick, watch how fast what you do for a living comes out of your mouth after you've introduced yourself. It happens to me all the time. Because of my job, I meet people all the time. I'm always meeting new people. I can't even get through the third sentence without reciprocating by telling them I'm a pastor because they were very quick to tell me what they did. Because it becomes who we are. Oh, you're a dentist. Well, you're a lawyer. That's great. Oh, you dig ditches? I mean, it changes the way that we relate with each other, right? It does. It changes the way that we do it. That's why today, with a recession, with people out of job, it's racking people's identity. We have an identity crisis today that's almost unparalleled, right? I've already talked about the NFL study that says 75% of NFL athletes, after they're cut from the league, they divorce their wives within two years. Because all they've ever known is the grandeur that comes from the stands. Their wife is not able to deliver. They pull the ejection cord and they're out of there. They're out of this marriage because the wife can't deliver what the screaming fans could. There's an identity crisis, right? Has anyone ever had a a, a dad or a mom or somebody who tried to retire, unsuccessfully tried to retire? Because the hobbies just aren't clicking. Because their identity, my dad's one of them. He He was caught up in the excitement of what his job was able to do. He just couldn't let it down. It was who he was. Moms that have babies, that they have a hard time staying at home and they want to go back to work. There's an identity crisis that happens with unemployment, right? Because for us, a lot of times, what we do is who we are, right? We're so, and as Christians, when we do that, it's because we're so unsatisfied with the identity that Christ gives us. We're so unsettled with being buried in Him that we grapple and we try to wrestle out an identity of our own. That's basically what we do. And when we do get a good career that we like and we strike gold, we bear hug that thing. We wrap ourselves in it. And we're so scared to let it go. We just pray that we never lose our job. We pray that that industry never wanes. We pray that we always have that because we never want to be known as anything else. Hey, I'm chief of it. If this church folds, if this thing... I've never been known other than a pastor. I've always been known as a pastor. The thought of me doing anything else, it frightens me. I mean, I'm with you. I understand what that feels like. I promise. Students do it too, right? I'll tell you what. One thing that campus ministry taught me over the 10 plus years we did it, talk to a student that goes to a state university, and they're really quick to tell you what school they went to. I go to UCLA. I go to USC, UNC, UT. I go to Duke. You know, they're really quick. You ask someone that goes to a junior college, 
Not so quick. Where do you go? Pellissippi, but you got to understand, I couldn't get the class load I wanted. There's always an explanation tied on to the end, you know? Where do you go? I go to, I go to Tarrant County Junior College, but, but listen, this is the deal. My financial aid wasn't worked out in time, so I'm going to go right back to the state university as soon as I can because we're so scared that people are going to look down on us as minor league citizens if we go to a junior college, learning the same thing everyone else is paying three times as much for, right? So, I got a fan up here. Y'all like that? Students do it. We are taught at at a young age that you are what you do. Not you are who your king was. Not that you are buried in an image that is unlike anything you can produce with your own hands or mind. Right? So, when we do this, and I am one of them, my heart, your heart, is to develop your own legacy. It's to be big in your own story. And it's to draw glory to yourself instead of the king. Right? That's what we do. That's what we do. So what do we do? Work is a curse. Work is a calling. These are the difficulties of it. We worship God through it. We worship God. This, this might be revolutionary to some of you. It was for me at a really young age. This was, this was new to me. There's this uh, commentator. His name is Thomas Constable. He's one of my favorites. And he says this. This work. He's talking about this specific passage. This work, or this view of work, transforms a worker's attitudes and performance. Even the most servile work thereby becomes a ministry and an act of worship. Work is worship for us. Work is a curse against us because of broken mankind. Work is a calling because of where God is drawing us to image Him. And work is worship as we do it under God. It's all three of those things. You know, there's this false dichotomy that all the worship happens here. Now, as we sing... As we read, as we give, as we take communion, all the worship happens here. Some of us have advanced to the place where we go, oh no. Worship also happens in living rooms, Luke, as we scatter. Not just church gathered, but church scattered. In living rooms as we're on mission. But how many of you can get to the place where you're saying, when I clock in, I'm worshiping God? How many of you can get there? Work is worship. If that is true, there are no secular jobs. There are no secular jobs. If you're a Christian, everything you do is spiritual. Everything you do is spiritual. When you work, you fight against the curse. Okay? When you become lazy, the curse wins and it prevails. Because the thorns and the thistles have talked you out of that calling. Work is a curse. When work swallows and completes you and becomes your identity, being a student completes your identity... The curse wins again. It prevails again. Because now you don't look as much like Christ anymore. Right? This is how it happens. So God is testing you at your job. He's testing you. The thing about God's tests is you never fail them. You just get to retake them over and over and over. Never fail God's tests, but you will take it again. Right? What does this mean for the lazy person? For the lazy person, right, this means that the problem is not the job. I've heard it a million times, and I'm sure you have too. It's this job. If I, just, if I just get this job, everything will be different. No, it won't. You're going to be lazy there too. Because it's not a job thing. It's a heart thing. It's a heart issue. It has nothing to do with the job. What about becoming your work? Grabbing a false identity and security from the work. Is that a job? I mean, if your wife talks you out or your husband talks you out of taking this job, or a friend says, hey, man, you're getting too wrapped up in this job. I mean, my gosh, it's all you ever do and talk about. It's just this job, 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 job. You need to get out of that job. No, the job's not the problem. 
You'll find another job and you'll do the same exact thing. It's a heart problem. It's not a job problem. God is trying to do something in us. In this job that you love too much, this job that you hate too much, God is doing something in your heart. And He's using the gospel to draw worship out of it. Right? Not better performance, but belief in a Christ who performed for us because we could not perform good at all. Right? So, this is, I'm finishing with this. He's saying to some of you today that your laziness is a denial of the calling that you have on your life to image Him. You're worshiping your comfort. You've abandoned worshiping God. The gospel, the gospel is saying otherwise. The gospel applied to your work ethic, if you're lazy, is to say that you worship a God who did something very uncomfortable. He led us. He was a template for us, even in our work. He's saying to some of us who our identity is all wrapped up in our employment and our career. He's saying that you're worshiping the image that you want so bad rather than the one who provided an image for you. One that you can be buried into. One that you can disappear and be wrapped up into. These are big problems. All of us, on a bad day, our factory settings will go one way or our factory settings will carry us the other way. I've never in my life been accused of being lazy. Never. I've always shown up way too early. I've always left way too late. I've always gone an extra mile. I've never once, never once in my life, even as a little kid, been accused of being lazy. I have always been dangerously on the precipice of using my employment, my job, as my identity. Dangerously close. Some of you are the same way, maybe the other way, but you all should know what I'm talking about, and you should all know exactly where you stand. The gospel right now, Christ right now, is wanting to deal with that in your heart right now. How we work, it paints a picture for people of who Christ is. How we work, it paints a picture of what true worship is. How we work, it paints a picture of what the gospel says. Can people tell that you are a Christ follower simply by the way you work? Can they do it? Can they do it? These are questions I want you to ask yourself 